Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Finding the confidence to enter the privileged world of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs is hard enough, and all the more so when you come from a different country with a background of poverty. But serial entrepreneur Ricky Yeen found ways to turn his differences into advantages by recognizing less obvious solutions to shared problems. After building Crowdbooster, a successful social media analytics firm, Ricky is now planning to disrupt the world of public relations, making metrics-driven journalist outreach accessible to small businesses on a subscription basis. In this episode, Ricky will tell us how he positioned himself to attract venture capital, what his experiences with startup incubators taught him, and how he turned his people skills into leadership by helping others around him achieve. Today I'm talking with Ricky Yeen, and he's the founder of a couple of startups. One is Crowdbooster, which you may have heard of, and another is PRX, which is newer. So, Ricky, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, how would you describe what Crowdbooster was doing? Uh, well, we made analyzing social media marketing really, really easy and intuitive for people who are not even data scientists, who are not used to looking at numbers we make the process simple, and we make producing reports simple, and we make knowing what to do next really easy to understand. That sounds like something that a lot of people would need. Yeah, and it, a lot of people did need it, and it was sad to walk away from that business after having it be the primary focus of your life for you know about five years. That's a fascinating choice to have to make when you, when you have something new, but I, I understand you've moved into this PRX project, and can you tell us a little bit about PRX? Yeah, PRX is in the business of making PR really easy and accessible for, you know, smaller and mid-sized businesses, you know, as opposed to having to hire an agency which might cost you ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a month. Uh, you only have to pay us $500 to launch a PR campaign for you. And on our end, we make the entire process really simple. All you have to do is give us a story that you want to put out there to the media. We do some basic vetting on your story to make sure that it has legs. And then we take the process from there. We will find the right journalists or editors or producers to bring your story to. We'll do the entire pitching process to help convince them that that they should cover your story. And uh, once we find journalists who are interested in your story, we connect them with you. And that's the entire process. That also sounds like something a lot of people would be looking for. And you're targeting particularly startups, right? Yeah, mostly startups. But we've also worked with obviously bigger companies. We work with a you know huge nonprofit as well. So is anyone who you know anyone who has a story doing interesting things that the media would be interested in? But for whatever reason, the traditional methods uh, are not conducive. They don't appeal to them, right? So it could it could be because the traditional methods. It's really difficult to find a good PR agency. There are definitely good ones out there, but it's it's hard to tell just from the the surface. Other times it's, it's you know a matter of time, a matter of, of cost, or a matter of you know being able to convince somebody internally in your organization to use something that requires so much more activation energy. So we make that really simple and uh, we found a, a good amount of interested customers. 
And PR is an area that I think a lot of people get very confused by when they start stepping into it because there are some very established operators who, as you've said, charge a lot of money for what they do, but they also have those connections out to the media. And that's one of the things people go to the big PR firms for, I think. Yeah, and it does look, especially for technical people, the media always seems like a black box, always seems like, oh, you know, you we're on the cons consuming end, we're just clicking on articles and watching videos. We don't really think about how those things get made. And when we do think about it, we think it's some kind of maybe like an old like boys club or something like that. When it's really not, a lot of journalists use similar tools to you and I when looking for interesting ideas to write about. They, they might sit on Reddit all day or they might Google and, and look at Twitter all day to try to find good ideas. And guess what? They're looking in their inboxes from all kinds of people, not just relationships that they have, to find the next great idea. And that's a process that we try to make easier for them. And over time, we are also establishing the same kind of relationships that a traditional agency would be establishing with them through person-to-person uh, -person relationships, except our special twist on that is we are building a platform. We're, we're a technology-driven company. So the platform really is the foundation for this, and that's, that's different from Malay that a lot of other PR agencies work. Can you tell us a little bit about the platform itself? We do a really good job knowing what a particular journalist might be interested in. So we are, Emma, yourself, for example, you know, a podcast host, we would have looked at all the past podcasts. We would have looked at all the articles that you might have written about your podcast or might, might have been reported by your podcast in other places. We might be looking at your social media profiles and your tweets to get an understanding of, well, what kind of topics does, she, does he like to talk about? And we do that across for every single journalist, every single content creator you can find on the internet. And we use that to make the matches. So we, I don't have to start by knowing who you are, David, but our platform can help us understand what you might be interested in. And once I bring you an interesting lead, then from that point on, you might take an interest in our platform and then start helping our platform get better. Oh, that's interesting. So you have a way for journalists to sign up as well. So, yeah, there's a way for journalists to sign up and tell us what they're interested in. And of course, that will only get more sophisticated. It's will have only been around for about a year. So that side of the experience is, is just starting to get richer. Right now, many of them still receive their first interaction with PRX is still a pitch that end up in their inbox. But over time, that's going to be a lot more interesting. So refining that pitch is clearly part of what you're helping these clients of yours to do. And you mentioned the importance of having a story. Do people come to you with a story in mind or do you help them refine that story? Yeah. So most of our clients come to us with a story in mind. This is an interesting part because we've been surprised. We have internally a way of kind of measuring how resonant or how story worthy an idea is and we we use that to kind of make sure that we don't just bring spam to journalists which hurts us obviously but we've been surprised sometimes we think this is not a story and the story ends up getting picked up and covered and become viral other times we think oh this must be a very significant story and it doesn't it's just nobody cares at the end of the day so and that that means that we have to get better at measuring what is and isn't a story. But at the same time, that also means that 
we do recommend increasing the volume of pitches, the the attempts, the the tries. We do recommend not being too annoying, and then of course, like lowering the activation energy as much as you can to try different ideas and find the right people and actually get real feedback from the market, the market of journalists, for example. That's an interesting term, lowering the activation energy. Can you tell me what that means to you? Right. So I think a lot of times. As a founder, or as somebody who thinks a lot about a particular industry, an example might be you might be reading an article about your industry. Let's say the podcast industry and how advertising is still very rudimentary in the industry. And then maybe as an operator, you have something to say about that because you read an article and you're like, I agree or I disagree or I don't. I think I have something better to say than this person that was quoted in this article. But once you have that thought. To go from that thought to getting that idea of yours pitched, and then getting awareness from the journalist side, and then ultimately resulting in coverage or not, getting that process started is way too hard currently. It's because again, like everybody said, like we said before, it still feels like a black box, and it sh- really shouldn't be. Most industries have because the internet. Become a lot more accessible. A lot of middlemen that used to sell you on their expertise and relationships have been productized. And of course, you know, for example, like in real estate, there, there's the middlemen still exists and is still very valuable. And I think that's the case with many, many industries. But there is a significant role that technology companies can play. It sounds like you've got a play for companies who are willing to take some of the ownership of that themselves. I know a lot of people will turn their story over to a PR firm and just abdicate responsibility for it and let them take over that role. Yes, and I think the customer satisfaction there is really you know we hear stories we hear stories from all kinds of different places where an experience with a PR agency may sometimes is really good, but a lot of times it's really poor, and it's the reason is because. Who is better than you, the company operators, at telling your story? Giving the ownership of your story off to another company requires a lot of trust. There's a lot of expertise, and there's a lot of time that needs to be spent. And there's this interesting when you when you choose to let an agency do it, you're also choosing to not spend time, which means that you can help them become more successful. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting, but I I do think that the trend today is that companies are starting to manage their own stories a lot more because there's an incentive to because well one it's easier like they can start a blog, they can start social media, and they can start telling a story on their own. Platforms, and then they've seen examples of companies like you know maybe like a Red Bull or like a Nerd Wallet or something like that, where they started with nothing and then built up this whole media empire that really really supports their business and put them on the map. So I'm betting that the work that you did with CrowdBooster had a lot to do with the way that you track the effectiveness of what you're doing today. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, there's definitely a lot of tech that we've learned about how to determine the effectiveness of a piece of media when it gets posted and gets spread on the internet. There's also work that we've done in terms of understanding the nature of the content and what the content's about. And yeah, so there's and there's just a lot of learning. And I think the main thing is we've seen 
a proliferation of media firsthand because we were the tool makers. We were the analytics provider for lots of aspiring media personalities that have gotten that got their start on Twitter maybe or on Facebook and then they, you know, use Crowdbooster and then three years later they have a media empire talking about something that Maybe really niche, but ends up getting a lot of a uh, big audience uh, or important audience, and that's just cool for us to see. And we think that's going to just continue to happen in the future. So I'm, I'm intrigued about this because CrowdBooster, I think, is something that a lot of people have heard of. I think probably some of our listeners were subscribers. You've moved past that and you've moved into this new business. I'm I'm really interested in how you made the decision to make that transition. Yeah. So the the way we made the decision to go from CrowdBooster to PIX is, was definitely a difficult one. We had the fortunate opportunity to build a tool for uh, that's depended on by a lot of people everywhere around the world. But we did find that we weren't solving the problem the way we wanted to solve it in the way that we felt satisfied solving the problem. So we built a tool to help people become better at telling their stories. But by giving them analytics, we sort of help them by equipping them with knowledge. The knowledge, when taken internally to an organization, it could be used in many ways, right? So depending on your ability to get an organization to change its direction or then, you know, we're just the tool makers. So we weren't really able to do much there other than giving you the information you need. With PRX, we wanted to solve the problem in more depth with more completeness. So we can help you take your story and we're responsible for an article that comes out on the other end, which is very different. We'll help you plan your campaign. We'll help you find the right people. But ultimately, we're also responsible for the outcome that you're looking for. And I think that is a lot more powerful. We just think that eh, this business it just has a lot bigger potential in terms of what we can do. I can see the big business potential. You're also positioning yourself in a very different place in the pipeline. And I'm curious how you prepared yourself for this and what resources you needed to gather around you to be able to handle that aspect of the business. So I handle all my PR and crowd booster, and I definitely was a student first. So I had a fortunate connection, found a friend that was an expert in PR, and, and she basically taught me everything. And I ended up doing it myself with crowd booster to a lot of success because Crowdbooster never really relied on any paid channels. It was all kind of organic media coverage that helped us with our growth trajectory. And that was really successful. And I keep hearing sort of disappointing experiences from my friends. So I wanted to fix that because it worked for me. But how come my friends can't replicate it? Yeah, so definitely it helped. And also, I think an interesting we have a DNA that's just different from other people in this particular industry. Like our our team of kind of engineers, we think we don't, we're not kind of privy to any of the old school ways of thinking. We like to learn also, so we're not like completely rejecting how things were done. But we just have like a healthy skepticism with everything, and especially with an industry like this that's been around for like you know a hundred years and hasn't really changed. Especially if you look at how fast media itself has changed in terms of the, all the enabling technologies in the media world. From our perspective, the PR category is really looking for a big update. <laughs> So it sounds like you're using your outsider status as a way to look more objectively at what you're doing and using metrics to drive what, what you want to accomplish rather than trying to rely on traditional ways of evaluating. Yes. 
that sounds like a very engineer type approach to this to solving this problem. Right, and then from there, it's you start thinking about okay, well, what are the potential shortcomings of this approach? Right, like, <laughs> right, like it's it's a good fresh approach, but what are we potentially missing on the team, for example? Yeah, I'm curious about that. Have you decided to move more along the lines of bringing in people from traditional PR background, or are you still focusing on this particular focus on on the metrics that you want to grow? We've definitely brought people on the te- onto our team that have traditional media background, more more on the younger side, so not a, a long history. But um, a brief history from a different world, I think that has given us very fresh perspectives. And I think as long as we keep our company, it's small, but our, our culture kind of the extension of who the founders are. And I think as long as we keep ourselves very honest and we don't, on one hand, like the Kool-Aid, the technology company Kool-Aid is that like, you know, engineers, engineering and, and computer science and software can really topple everything in the world. On the other hand, we're, I think we happen to have like sentiments that are you know we're we're just looking out for what we don't know and we want to learn from the best people and we're looking at the problem objectively and being aware of our shortcomings well that begs the question what kind of a background did you bring to what you're doing i mean i know that you started crowd booster but can you tell me a little bit about how you developed the skills to become an entrepreneur in the first place yeah, it wasn't really like an intentional thing. I, I went to school at, at Stanford, which is back in between 2006 and 2010. And 07, 08 was kind of the quiet period because of the financial crisis. So starting companies was not really a very common thing on campus, which is very different from now. But what I found was I found a small group of people that really enjoy making things. And they just got pure joy out of making things that sometimes just for themselves, most of the time for themselves, but, you know, also for the world. And that kind of appreciation, I I gravitated towards that kind of people. My personal background is actually not in engineering, but when when I found these individuals on campus, and, and it was a small community, they all mostly happened to be in computer science, and they just appreciated and loved building things. And I think that spirit was just amazing thing to equip myself with, because then you start asking yourself, you know, I want to be part of this, and how can I contribute here as much as I can? You know, I'm, I'm curious, what, what did you study? I study science, technology, and society. I think it's only in a few colleges that have this major, and it's it studies. It's kind of a broad survey of everything. And to be honest, I, I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted, but I wanted to kind of look at everything. And at the same time, I really fell in love with some student organizations on campus that I was part of, and I fell in love with doing these side projects with my friends, building things. And also, it, it was a strategy to help me sort of optimize my time as well. It's hard to find the time just to be a successful student, let alone to be actively involved in these organizations. Yeah, but it, it gave me, I think my people skills did come out, and my organizational skills did come out and I didn't know I had it in me when I joined these student organizations and then came into leadership positions and then later working on small teams on these side projects that we were doing in school, which ended up becoming obviously a a startup. But I found myself in a different element. And that's a really good feeling. I think a lot of people spend decades looking for it. And some people maybe not are not successful at finding it ever. 
were people skills an issue for you? It always came naturally, but I, I didn't knew, know I had it, and I didn't know what they were useful for. <laughs> yeah, so I think in school, I was part of an organization called Basis. It's an entrepreneurship society, basically, at Stanford. And I found it natural to take on leadership positions when others didn't want to, and I, I felt motivated Unlike others in leadership positions, I felt motivated to get everyone working, you know, towards the same goal. I felt motivated to move things out of the way for other people so that because they're also busy students, but I want them to achieve this common goal. So what can I do to kind of remove the obstacles in the middle and let great people do great things? It sounds like you were gravitating toward leadership right away. Yeah, that was not obvious. And it, it, when it became obvious, it was definitely a big confidence boost because I think going from a public school to a private school, well, I, I went to just a regular public school in L.A. for high school. You know, I never thought of myself as really brilliant. I, I definitely had to work ethics. But when I got to Stanford, it was definitely a shock, like a cultural shock, where everyone else is so brilliant and they can tell all these stories about their brilliance or you can just see it because it's just right there. It's so obvious. You definitely feel out of place. A lot of people at places like Stanford, and I'm sure later if you go to work at a company like a, like a Google or something, or you might just discover other brilliant people there and feel like an imposter, right? So it's a very common problem, and I definitely suffer from that. And being able to do leadership and work on these projects with great people made me feel like I found a place for me, and that was really powerful. I know I read an essay that you wrote a while back about privilege and inequality in Silicon Valley. I'm curious, could you tell us a little bit about how that affected you? Yeah, sure. I think my article came in a time when there were some discussion from, you know, people like Paul Graham talking about like inequality and how startups produce inequality in the world. And then obviously the political climate talked about different things. And my co-founder and I have always wondered, just felt like the conversation was not, didn't do it justice. Like the problem we feel firsthand because we come from lower income backgrounds. And what we thought was, hey, look, yeah, it's obvious. It's not just that, yeah, you don't have resources. Some people have resources, others don't have resources. Some people have access, some, some others don't have access. It's not just about the tangible things. It's really like how you think that is a big difference. And having gone to Stanford with a lot of privilege myself and, and being able to be friends with others with lots of privilege, it's not hard to see how the ways of thinking are so foreign. So, you know, maybe you have a problem that you you want to you, you need to solve. It's a problem that can be solved with money, but it's not about having the money to spend it. But it's about some people are more inclined to say, oh, yeah, that's an obvious choice. I would definitely spend money to solve that problem because my time is a lot more valuable and I know what I want to use the time for. Others like me have always been much more eager to save every penny and solve everything the hard way without giving like a stepping back and thinking about, you know, what's the time value on my time, that kind of stuff. And it's just, I mean, that, that's just one example. I think it's just like the way you think, like how quickly can you get to say, oh, I should solve this problem with money, or that's just already different from the get-go, because I don't have never been trained to think like that. I'm curious, does that still affect you as, uh, as you've uh, moved into these roles where you're leading companies and negotiating deals and hiring and firing people? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it definitely it still affects me. But I think just by writing it down, and if you haven't read it, you can just go 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 read it. But I, by writing it down, it definitely helped me get to a level of awareness with the problem. Even the term mindset inequality, which is what I wrote, which actually came from my co-founder, because it was before he gave me the term mindset inequality. It was actually two long sentences. Of something that just sounded crazy, and then he's like, "Oh, what you're saying is basically there's an inequality in the mindset." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's okay." <laughs> But once I got that, I think that's really the reason why my essay was well received because people found a way to talk about something that they've been trying to talk about, but there was no word for it. So I think once you're aware, then the next step is okay. How do you fix it, or how do you adjust your mindset? One trick I use is basically, I can imagine there are lots and lots of friends of mine that come from places of more privilege than me, relatively more privilege than me. So I would just think, oh, like what would that guy do, or what would this girl do, and、uh, try to mimic their brain. And because I have the benefit of having had some conversations with them, so I kind of can reproduce their thought process、uh, as far as I understand it, and think, oh, okay, I think in this situation that guy would do this. Okay, and then that's very different from what I would do. Does this suit me? And can I take that method instead of my method? So you've got these virtual role models that you're calling on people you've met, people that you've interacted with, whom you can project what they would do in this circumstance. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's very useful because it just forces you to get out of yourself, your own body. Another thing that I've learned is like the inequality is all relative. Like I, I got huge responses. From places like India and 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 Africa, and I would read the stories in my email、uh, about how the essay resonated with them, and then they would describe the 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 realities of the situation, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe this resonates because your situation, I'm so privileged to be like on my side of the world and doing this thing, and even writing an essay that got attention. That's something that like you don't even get to do, but yeah, like it definitely, regardless of what kind of. Disadvantages that you think you have, you, you can definitely always find another person that thinks differently, and and just try to model yourself after that person. Do you still seek out these peer groups to go through and find people that you can work with that way to share ideas and bounce ideas off of? I think yeah, I I don't do it.、Uh, there's no formal way of doing it. I in my head keep a roster of. People that I know are good at thinking of different things. So one thing that I am getting better and better at every day is how to allocate resources better in a startup world where there's limited resources. But it's more resources than I've ever had myself personally. And your goal is to obviously procure more resources, and you're solving a a big problem that even with the existing resources and your future, your the resources that you could procure in the near future, you might not even be able to get close to solving the problem that you really want to solve, right? So how do you plan that out, and how do you think about Resources, and I have individuals that I know that have you know gone on and raised tens of millions of venture funding, or or just come from a a position of you know, where their family is 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 relatively wealthy, and then have sat down with them and have gone over these issues maybe at the dinner table, or just from watching their their parents work in their businesses. I would imagine just projecting from what you're saying that the delegation of responsibility might be an issue if you're having trouble with that. Delegation, I think, yeah, delegation is part of it. 
yeah, and then there's just some other things that are that are maybe like a little bit more than that because it could be how you carry yourself, whether or not you feel like you belong when you step in the room with other people that don't look like you that come from different backgrounds. Do you feel like you are one of them, or do you feel like? You shouldn't be there, and that definitely affects your facial expression and how you look, and it definitely would affect how you represent your company and all everything downstream—deal making, negotiation, that kind of stuff. When you were learning how to do this, you've talked about some of the people that you were、uh, learning from. Are there were there any particular individuals who provided that kind of mentorship and that kind of guidance for you? Not anyone in particular. I think I take bits and pieces of my different friends and their personalities. So there isn't like anyone that any individual that I I model myself after. I'm still looking. What I have found is, for example, I really enjoy the article from WaitButWhy.com when they. Actually, did a series on Elon Musk. One of the things that the article mentioned was how your body is hardware and software, and your brain is software. That then that for whatever reason, most people don't think about their brains that way as something that can be up, upgraded to fit your circumstances better. Even just that concept, very powerful. And and then later on. When I read about Ray Dalio's principles, I start seeing a lot of patterns in in articles and or books I read that have like a similar a similar idea that basically you're, it's kind of like the growth mindset, fixed mindset kind of thing. I think is very powerful where your 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 brain is something that's malleable. And you can mold it to be whatever you want it to be. So now that you're you're in the position where you're you're running a company, is is this is full time for you? I'm guessing. Yeah. Oh. 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 Yeah. Way. Way full time. <laughs> How full is that time? But what what is your routine like? I definitely, as an entrepreneur, have done the thing where you you work and barely sleep, and you work all seven days a week. I've burned out about three times, and as the first three years of after college, I basically burn out once a year, and then I would tweak something about my experience to、uh, my my routine to avoid future burnout. So now my routine is pretty manageable. I take Saturdays completely off, and I work sort of a few hours on on Sundays like regular people, and then on、um, Monday through Friday, it's it's pretty much like. You know, nine to seven or something like that, and I always meditate every day, and I always journal every day, and that's something that I've been able to keep up and been very useful to me. The mindfulness practice can be incredibly useful. What kind of journaling practice do you have? I have tried journaling in the past many times, but never stuck. And the one trick, one lesson was someone told me to just write and just promise yourself that no one's ever going to read your journal, and you can just write whatever you want in there, and you don't even have to worry about your writing because only you're going to be reading it. That's been like the most useful tip in helping me journal every day, and it's being extremely aware. Of all the problems that you run through on a daily basis, and all the thought process that you, your thought process that you have, some of which are not refined, most of which are not refined. So writing it down and kind of being able to step back and look at yourself, think. It's also how I think. I think by talking, so I'm a little bit more on the wordy side, and I also think by writing my thoughts down and reading my own writing. So. That's something that I figured out over time. Do you go back and read those? No, once in a while I would go back 
but not really. And going back to read hasn't really been that, hasn't really taught me anything. Like I might have noticed, oh, how far have I come? Or like, oh, that problem that I used to worry about, like didn't really matter at all. Other than that, like, no, I don't do it that frequently and it doesn't really teach me that much. It's more just a process of writing. I think coming to that realization that that problem you are worried about doesn't really matter now anymore is a part of the beauty of journaling. Yeah. So you're working really hard. I'm curious how you keep yourself motivated. That's a good question because it's not, it hasn't been a problem. I think the, I love getting better and I love learning and I love challenging myself. My friend once told me that it's like leaning into the pain. So like, I feel like I'm always leaning into the pain because like the the pain, not too much of it, obviously, but like a, a healthy dose of pain really does push you to get better at every aspect of what you're trying to do. And I think that's the joy I get out of doing startups that, you know, maybe perceive as high risk or long hours or just hard in general. Oh, why would you even do that? But it's, it's the best way to learn. I think it's great. No, pain is an interesting motivator. I think a lot of people are motivated to stay away from pain. Yeah, I have noticed that. Yeah, there's different ways to characterize it, I think. <laughs> like, I think some of my smartest, most brilliant friends dislike pain uh, slash are lazy. So they like to do things the, the smart way, not the hard way. And that's definitely something that I'm learning from them as well. But I can only learn from them when I have so much on my plate. I really need to reevaluate my strategies. And then I realize that, oh, I need to do things the smart way. And then I have a way of doing it. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's part of the motivation. It's impressive not to be afraid of the pain, but if you're hanging out with engineers, you're definitely going to find a lot of people who are looking for the smart, lazy way to do things. That's how a productive engineer works. Right, exactly. And I think that's that should be how it works. And yeah, so I guess the pain is to ultimately become better at getting rid of pain. Tell me a little bit about the size of the organization. You have employees, right? Yes, uh, fortunately, but not very many. Not very many. We're currently at seven people right now, and and obviously growing. Yeah, so but still sub ten. And was this company built out of venture capital? Did you finance it yourself? Yeah, it's definitely built out of venture capital. Definitely raised money for to pursue this business. We're going to yeah to do this right. It's definitely going to be going to be require more external capital. That's interesting. It sounds like that's probably something that you learned going to Stanford. Was that's the way to build a business? You know, that's a total shock to me when we when we were trying to figure out how to make our side projects, our full time projects, the only source of funding we knew at the time were there were there were three. There was Y Combinator, which we found out because of Hacker News and we found out because they hosted a conference uh, at Stanford in two thousand seven called Startup School, which interestingly is where Jeff Bezos announced Amazon Web Services to the world for the first time. And uh, everybody got a t-shirt and some credits to play with. And then nobody really cared for what it is <laughs> because everybody was there to watch Amazon's founder talk. But he came in and he didn't talk about Amazon. He talked about Amazon Web Services. It was like, what is this? <laughs> Little did we know that sort of launched like a, the second wave of, of internet startups. And then we also knew about Techstars, which has another incubator. And then we learned about uh, VC called Lightspeed Ventures had a summer program at Stanford for students. And those were only three sources of funding. <clears throat> and they're all small amounts of money. We didn't know that there were people who actually just give us 
more money than that to hire other people and build a team to pursue whatever dreams we have. That was a complete foreign concept to us. And I, I think obviously you learned the game,、uh, you learned the business, you learned that oh, it's actually quite rational that they want to bet on you when because they have made bets on people that、uh, look or sounded like you and have gotten you know a hundred or. Five hundred x their returns, or a thousand x their returns. So it's totally rational when you think about how their funds are structured. But that just was not clear to us in the beginning. And yeah, so once you learn about that, you also obviously strategize and you learn, you approach your building your business differently. It does open up a different set,、uh, kind of business that you can. Build that you would not be able to build as easily somewhere else in the world without access to capital. Well, you talk about having a different mindset—the mindset of trying to start a business by bootstrapping versus trying to start it by getting venture capital. You have to have a completely different approach. Yeah, you, you do. And you know, I have—I'm from Taiwan, and I have met entrepreneurs there that their full-time job is a software consulting firm. But they only do that to work on their nighttime job, which is a startup, because that's the only way they can get funding going. Because the funding environment is just not there in in the country. So the fact that you're here in Silicon Valley really does make a big difference. Huge, huge, huge difference. And and the fact that I look like some of the entrepreneurs that have walked into a venture capital's office, the the fact that I sound like some of them and I'm friends with some of them, definitely is a huge advantage that I have. Well, given given all of those things, how did you structure yourself so that you could present to a venture capitalist? I'm I'm really curious about that process. The structure, I think, definitely speaks to. I don't know how interesting this is, but I think generally, just these guys bet on on patterns. They see so many data points; it's hard for them to process what is a great business from what is a not great business. So, definitely try to hit points on some of the common patterns that are if you spend. Time in the valley at all, you will definitely come to understand. For example, investors look for a team that has strong technical skills, but also, depending on the industry, strong business skill or strong design skills. Especially if you're a consumer company, they look for businesses that can potentially have an unfair advantage or a network effects type of business, where the more successful you get, the more successful you become, like that. So. Definitely try to hit on some of these points. So I imagine that the success that you had with CrowdBooster was was definitely an advantage as you were pitching PRX. Yeah, so CrowdBooster was definitely an advantage that we're we have industry knowledge and we are we're seasoned and and at the same time we can also make an argument that what we're building obviously has strong network effects and you know the more PR campaigns we launched. The better we get, the more journalists we interact with, the better we get. We also obviously can make a case to them about why this is only possible now and not two, three years ago, and you know why it must be now and not two, three years in the future. In the media ecosystem right now, the the kind of business model pressures that different companies are experiencing, and and the rise of Podcasters like yourself, the rise of bloggers on Medium, the the kind of distribution efficiencies that we have through tools like Facebook and and Twitter, the environment is set up for a very very different media environment in the future. And who knows what's going to be in the future, right? It could be virtual reality. It could be there's going to be TV in the back of your Uber. We don't know. How we're gonna consume content from all kinds of different places, and there will be different players competing for your attention. 
yeah, and that world looks very different from the world before it begs for a, a new solution. Yep. Once again, your outsider perspective, your willingness to be scrappy and go in places where a traditional PR firm might not have gone, but to track it by the statistics and by the metrics that are important to you, that's a real advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that is the, the true advantage that we're building is that this entire platform in, in some areas might appear similar to what a, a traditional PR service provider would give you, but the way it's built is, is very different. Was CrowdBooster also, was it incubated or was it through VC? It was also incubated. It was also angel and small VC. That's interesting. How, how did you choose to go in a different path with PRX? I think even when we did CrowdBooster, even when we received funding, it was never that clear to us that this funding was meant to solve the first part of an experiment on building a rocket ship. Partially because after we built CrowdBooster, we were successful at, well, first of all, we built like six or seven different projects before we even got to CrowdBooster. And then once we got to CrowdBooster, we we had we saw some really strong traction in terms of user base. That was able to give us some more resources. And the resources was meant to kind of prove out another part of the experiment. For example, like can we continue to grow at this fast pace and would the user base be extremely valuable even though we're not making any money? If it's valuable, in what way could it be valuable and strategic? Or can you make money and you know how will you turn that into a really strong revenue generating business? And we were able to grow and uh, with a free user base and and we when we launched our business solutions, we were able to make strong early traction on revenue as well. I think that's also a little bit of a curse in disguise too because because we had revenue, we were profitable. And so we were not as like 24-year-olds, not, not quite sure where we wanted to take it. Like, is this a, a VC business? Is this a, are we just going to keep going with, with the profits that we're making? If we weren't making money, I think that answer would have been obvious. We had to think about, you know, how to tell another third-party investor a, a much bigger story. But because we were making money, we, we weren't under that pressure. This time around with PRX, because the scale and the, the scope of the project, uh, the problem that we're tackling is, is, is so much grander, so much bigger, and we have had the experience in the past. And even though we are revenue generating, we do see ourselves currently as conducting the, the very first part of this experiment. And yeah, we're very clear about that this time. That's fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about how you manage your business? I mean, you've got these employees. Is it, is this physically co-located or do you have employees remotely as well? Yeah, it's it's physically co-located. We work out of the same office every day. In terms of management, I think for a small company, I don't, I don't know like what you call management. A lot of it is we do have some rhythms. So, you know, we definitely do like scrum check-ins every day. We have like a bigger sort of like specking out the, the sprint every week. My co-founder and I also spend a lot of time talking structured and unstructured. We definitely have one-on-ones with uh, every member of the team. And, and in general, the 
I think more importantly, I think it's outside of the, all those structures. I think those rhythms are useful because even though sometimes you may not have things to update each other on, like just keeping the rhythm going, kind of just it's it's more important, like the process itself. But I think outside of the all the different structures and processes that we've put in place, we as founders were very intellectually honest. My my co-founder and I once like were talking about this, like to the outside world, like Ricky, I'm I'm the CEO, I'm the guy that's kind of selling the, the Kool-Aid to the outside world. But but in, internally we have like truth serums, like internally and, and everyone Everyone kind of thinks Ricky is is full of full of it, <laughs> but internally there's like a, a lot of healthy skepticism, with the ultimate goal of making what I say come to life. Obviously, but the people we hire tend to have a very high intellectual curiosity and honesty, and we 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 like that a lot. Yeah, we think that's a really good balance. It's a good good traditional approach to to keeping the business happy and comfortable and keeping people productive, feeling that they're involved and engaged in the process. Yeah. One question I, I like to ask founders in particular was if you had to start over again now, knowing what you know now, would you do what you've been doing any differently? Yeah, I definitely would. And I think one thing that I would do better is sort of managing my communication better. I think the communication should probably be one of my strongest skill sets as a CEO with stakeholders. And uh, I, I think. I think when we were much greener earlier in our careers, we definitely felt like imposters, even to investors and, and supporters and advisors that are on our side. We tend to keep all the things from them, thinking that once we're successful, once we have more to show, and then we communicate with them, then it's better <laughs> because for whatever reason, that's what we think. So two realizations is, is obviously one, even investors that have put money in your company or just anyone outside, they don't really think about you that much, obviously, right? You should really try to make yourself top of mind for them. And they also are not, not because they don't think about you, they're also not really judging you. So you shouldn't be really that afraid of being, being judged. Obviously, there's nuances to this. Well, I, I like the concept that re realizing the people who are investing in you, that you're not their top priority. You're just a place that they put their money and they just want to see results. But it's nice to be keeping yourself top of mind with them. I think this is, uh, this is, by the way, is still definitely a work in progress. But I think you, you end up building a, a different kind of relationship. Um, most of these investors, especially the best ones, are, are not always, they're not always just money managers. They're part of the value and part of what makes them good is because they are your partners. And uh, the more you can treat them like partners, the better. Obviously, you know, they're not going to be able to teach you how to run your business, but there are things that they know that you don't know about the market, about definitely the capital markets that investors play in that would really benefit you to know um, more. So being top of mind helps them help you. So a lot of companies measure their success financially, but I'm curious, how do you measure the success of what you're doing? It's very interesting. Obviously, revenue is, is really simple metric and so we definitely do measure ourselves by revenue um but there's also revenue today revenue tomorrow there's also like the so many companies we we hear of scale before they really have true part of market fit and uh, i mean it's just a concept of like how necessary have you made yourself to your 
target customers, right? And, and you know, different people describe it differently. It could be like a net promoter score or something. Just basically how much the people want you and need you. And even if you've proven that they need you a little bit, if you scale beyond how much they need, you might end up finding yourself having a, a really weak business, even though you might have invested a lot of money trying to reach a lot more people with your solution. So we definitely measure in terms of engagement with the journalists. We definitely measure in terms of like customer satisfaction. So all those things are metrics that we watch for very closely. Very cool. So I'm sure that a lot of my listeners are going to want to find out more about your services. How can people find you online? PRX.co. Yeah. And you can email me at ricky at PRX.co. You can also find me on Twitter. It's my first name, last name, at Ricky Yen. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Ricky, so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, David. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.